Before we get started today, I wanted to share some awesome news with you. Boys and girls, listeners, leaders, and friends, drum roll please, come on. My newest book, the follow-up to On Fire, is called In Awe. And In Awe hits bookshelves in May of 2020. Many of you already knew that this was coming because more than 1,500 of you voted on the cover design. I'm certainly grateful for that. But you may not know what the trigger to write this book was in the first place. Well, I wrote it. The inspiration behind it was for my kids. You see, my kids have inspired me to recapture and to harness my childlike senses of wonder in order to become a little bit more engaged, successful, fulfilled, and joyful in life. In this world of negative news cycles and loneliness as an epidemic, chronic struggle of doing more and more and more with less and less and less, the book In All will provide us the tools to help us rediscover the childlike qualities of wonder, of curiosity, of openness, and of daringness that allow us to live more fully, to be a little bit more playful, and to be way more joyful in the way we live and lead forward. And in this season of giving, there is no better time than right now to pre-order a copy of In Awe. The book is going to remind you what we once so freely enjoyed and how returning to it will positively transform our communities, our organizations, our families, and our lives. For a limited time, I'm including an interactive copy of In Awe, the playbook with all pre-orders. This In Awe playbook provides hours of activities giving you the opportunity to start implementing some of the lessons as you joyfully await May 2020's release of the book In Awe. So my friends, I encourage you right now to hit pause on the podcast and visit me right now online. Here we are. Visit me at www.readinawe.com. I'm going to say that one more time. I want to make sure you are able to visit me. So here we go. www.readinawe.com. Go there today and pre-order your copy of In Awe to ensure your In Awe playbook is delivered before the holiday season. Again, it is readinawe.com. You're going to love the playbook. You are going to love the book. And after you read it, you're going to even more so love your life. Get ready for it, my friends. And now, on to today's episode. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, my friends, welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I am honored to bring today's guest onto the show. She's taking the call from her Brooklyn, New York apartment where she is a writer, a wife, a mother, and she's going to courageously share parts about her life, including her iconic father and their rocky relationship. Her name is Lisa Brennan Jobs, and of course, her father is Steve Jobs. Steve, of course, is the mastermind behind the personal computer, the iPod, the iPhone, the iPad, the music industry. Huge, huge, huge player. And Lisa's going to take us on the bumpy journey from being an outcast 
to finding reconciliation with a man so many others respected outside of her home. So without further ado, grab your journal. Let's buckle up together. Grab your favorite iPad, iPhone, whatever it is that has an eye in front of it, and welcome my newest friend, author of Small Fry, Lisa Brennan-Jobs. Lisa, welcome to Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really grateful. Lisa, tell our listeners why you decided to write your tell-all memoir, Small Fry, and what the process was like for you. It was a little bit cheeky of me because I, with help from other people, like my mother who was saying, you have to understand your story in order to not repeat it. And she was really insistent about this. I thought, oh my God, it's so cheesy. I, you know, last thing I want to do is a memoir if I'm the kid of someone famous. I mean, <laughs> but then it felt like I, you know, I could take this chance that I got to spend time it was a very rare thing, right? It wasn't going to be hard for me to be published just because of my father, even if I published a crappy book, but to take the chance of this and write the book that would be meaningful to me was a kind of cheeky thing, right? Oh, thank you for giving me this um, possibility of writing a book because my father was famous. Now I'm going to take it and write it really about me. But so that was my thing was like, I'm actually a writer. Yes. Which, and it's so rare to be a writer, to be born into this kind of family. And so I knew it was like this rare chance to really try to get it right. But when I started, I wasn't appearing on the pages. Like I was, my editor would say, okay, she'd read a little section. She said, okay, like, you know, this person's coming through, this person's coming through. That's interesting. But where are you? And it was true. It's like, where was I on the, I mean, it's hard to even describe now what that kind of absence was. I think I was embarrassed even to use the word I, but it was more fundamental than that. I think we write a book to find out what we think the truth is. Mm. And I think that my perspective on what the truth was hadn't anywhere near near stabilized. So I was almost hovering above myself and that was coming through in the writing. Like, who is she? And I think part of the reason I was hovering is I was hiding Mm. because I felt bad. You know, like, who is she? She's the one who wasn't really admitted into the club. Like, she's the one who wasn't good enough, maybe tall enough. She was the bastard child. Like, why should we listen to her? I mean, if you were admitted into all the clubs, you wouldn't want to be a memoirist. You would be so busy living your life in the hot center of (laughs) wantedness that you wouldn't take this time to kind of go through the fire of writing. I mean, we don't take the time to transform unless we have to because it's miserable. So when you wrote the book, like, so I've written two books now. And when I write, I write chapters and stories for individual people that I think need to read it. And that way I can be, yeah, like I want it to be super personal to that person, to a business friend, to the guy I met at the airport six weeks ago that I think really needs to benefit from this type of story. I'm curious, when you wrote that book, Lisa, you, you got this big advance. You know the book's going to be big. Like you said, even if it's bad, the book's going to get out there in a big way, which means you're kind of under some pressure to write for the macro audience. But in reading it, I feel like ultimately you were writing for an audience of one, hoping others would come alongside of you. I started to write the book at 30, but I wasn't the person who could write the book. Right or who could finish the book till I was 40. So, but I couldn't have become the person who could finish the book at 40 unless I'd started at 30. And so, so it was like this, this trapped decade, you know, where I have to be working. So I guess what I'm saying is there's pressure on a macro level, but that's not why the pressure probably made me take a few more years Mm -hmm. than I would have otherwise taken because I knew that 
It had to be so finished because I got this extra thing where I wasn't going to have trouble publishing it. But the thing that was taken away in exchange for that is that I was going to get attention and I was going to get bad attention mm -hmm. if it wasn't right. So, so the only way I started appearing on the pages is I started writing about things that I didn't like about myself. Mm. When something didn't necessarily go right for me when I was like eight or seven. And so I'd kind of find a way to bring my father up in conversation to bolster my own ego. I mean, that is not something I feel terribly proud of. Right. But if I wrote it out, I was somebody on the page. It was only through accessing these things that I didn't feel so good about that I could start to appear. I probably write for myself. Philip Lopate, who's a memoirist who I think is really good. He writes personal essays and memoirs and he's excellent. And he talks about this, this kind of writing and, and making yourself into a character, a truthful character, mm -hmm. but find, you know, it's like a guideline to find yourself in a, a, as a character, not just to sort of assume certain things or, or think of other people. As, but he says he writes for a group of kindly strangers. Mm. They care about him. They want the best for him. You can't necessarily make out their faces, but they're willing to read things and they're interested, but they're also dispassionate in a certain way, mm -hmm. in a warm way. Maybe they, they're wise and they have a degree of distance. And I would say, I think I sort of write for them and I also write for cadence. Like I'll talk to myself a lot when I'm writing. I'll realize <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I'm talking to myself. <laughs> Just because I can get the cadence then, you know, I can get some part of what's stuck inside me out, out. Yes. and it happens through that voice, but it's not altruistic. It is not for someone else. And in fact, I did find the most sol solace really writing things that I almost thought I would never want anybody to know about. Right. We'll talk about some of those things, I would imagine, during this conversation. You, you begin the book not as a child, which I thought you might, but as an adult at your father's side, Steve Jobs is dying. And you spend the next 370 or so pages building back to that moment. How difficult was it emotionally to really go back and dust off the stories and unpack what needed to be told in this book? It was very difficult. I think at the very beginning, I, I had this embarrassing thought, which I only shared with like two people, which was, I've written enough to do an, a proposal. I've written a couple scenes that are working and that have a lot of detail and that I'm able to remember well, but oh my God, there's whole landscapes of my childhood I don't remember and nobody knows that, but it's true and I can't tell anybody. I haven't advanced to write a book that I simply <laughs> do not have the memory for. So it was like, but I think memory is actually very interesting. I, I think feelings and facts exist somehow in layers within us. And once we get to a whole new layer of facts, a whole new layer of feelings emerges. And those then in turn bring up more facts. Yeah. And you could imagine how that might work like with a young child. I mean, this is why I think some of the schools are making a big mistake in that they're not paying as much attention to the emotional quality of the children's lives as the intellectual quality. Because I think if you're in some degree of emotional pain, you have less access to learning because you, you have to shut down to some degree. So you're less curious. But I think what happens with memory is also that it's so woven in with feelings, the quality of emotions weave with facts. Hmm. And until you can access the emotions, you are actually not getting to the facts. So I had to go through certain feelings about certain things and then new stories that I had forgotten popped up in all their lush detail. 
Well, let's start unpacking a little bit of that story because the, uh, the book does it beautifully, but I'm gonna begin in a place that I wasn't expecting. Your mom and dad, they met in high school. They fall in love. They fall out of love. They fall back in love. They have some amazing stories and experiences together. Six years after they first meet, Lisa, your mother shares with your father that she's expecting. This is you, the one I'm on the phone with right now, she's expecting. How, how did Steve react to that? Both of them are very passionate and very young. And he definitely didn't, didn't want me. I mean, how could he? He was 23 and his career was just starting to take off. And she was 23. And I mean, the truth is she'd already figured out where she, the job she was trying to get so she could save enough money so she could move out of the house where she was living with him. Mm. She had just realized, oh my God, I don't, this isn't right. And she'd gotten birth control. And in other words, things were just ending. Mm. So we have to remember that when we think of his reaction, because it was so bad. He, I think he just didn't say anything to her. And then he left, they were standing and talking in the sort of little area where you'd eat on the dining area off the kitchen. And he just walked out of the room. The end was there. Like the, the, the this couple was uh, unfortunately falling back out of love again. And then this news shows up and then little you show up in both of their lives. It's going to be a- Well, not only were they falling out of love, but things were rapidly shifting into a whole new system. Like my father's business was at the very beginning of a kind of rocket ship. Right. And he could sort of feel that taking place. And I think that when he was- especially when he was younger, maybe, but also older, perhaps, I don't know. But when he was like in the crazy fervent moment, when work became crazy and fervent, already emotions were more, maybe a more difficult part for him. But certainly in that context, he was not emotionally able to hold everything. I'm like trying to be very gentle, but you know what I mean? Like he couldn't- You are being be, very gentle. I know, he couldn't, well, it's just, you know, I've had to be really careful because it's like, Anytime I'm at all strict with him or even lines in the book that I didn't mean to be so stark are taken out of context. And, you know, so what I mean is just that we have to have compassion to some degree for all of the characters or we can't have compassion for ourselves. Like I couldn't get the book to work until I started to think, oh, what must that have been like for him to be this 23-year-old man, to have his company just about to go like a rocket ship, to not have much of an emotional foundation, and then this. Mm-hmm. So he didn't behave very well, but it was quite a difficult thing. I mean, one of the things about writing the book is I'm like, I'm writing it from the perspective of a woman who is more than 10 years older than my parents were then. And so I can have a certain degree of, of, of compassion because they seem like such children. Were you able to look back on the experiences and write it almost as a detective rather than a victim to it? You try to write something when you want someone to feel bad for you. Try to manipulate your reader and they basically they they smirk they and yes. they smirk and bail because this is the great thing about writing is it does reveal certain truths that speech doesn't like you can be talking with someone and say oh this happened and then this happened and this happened and they say oh i'm so sorry try to write it and they might think huh well seems like he's unlucky and he's a whiner <laughs> you know it's like you don't buy it as a reader you're you're smart and you're and you don't like being talked down to you realize that people are more powerful than they take responsibility for. There were certain parts that I felt really bad for myself and I had to feel it and then go through it like a car wash and get on the other side and start to look around and start to wonder how other people might've been feeling and start to notice all the ways that I was devious and that I was 
doing things that made my life work. You're bearing more weight than you should as a child whose father is denying paternity and who is paying the oh, absolute yeah, no. minimum. And so I, I mean, he was really bad then. And, and part of what was so bad about that, I mean, despicable. I'll tell you what was the worst thing about that. My mom and I were okay, and he was not a fit person to be around at that time, meaning he did not know how to be a parent. He was too young. He did not have any models, as far as I can tell, in that realm that would have been particularly useful for us. Like, it was better for us to be on our own, and I don't know if he would have been able to give money without ceding control. Mm -hmm. He needed control if he was giving money, I think, and his control would not have been good for us. So, I mean, we look at this now, we're like, maybe we were lucky, but in some ways I blame the state. Like, why Why did he get away with paying so, like, yes. why does a man who has so much so much money and who's so young, and why did all of his friends not say, hey, hey, Steve, you've got to give her more for you later. That's the worst part about it. He did something so shameful that he couldn't get over it. He lost out. Like, he lost yeah. out. Big time. If the state had been like, you know what? That's not appropriate. You need to be financially more present. You don't need to be physically more present until you're ready, but financially you need to step up. Or if one of his friends had, maybe some of them did, I don't know, but if someone had really gone to bat for the situation, I think it would have served him better because later he wouldn't have been so ashamed. Later he wouldn't have missed out so much. He was bereft and yes. I was bereft and we were bereft. It was so hard. Lisa, I, I um, underlined repeatedly in your book, almost every other page, like, a, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that happened. For me, one of the areas that drew the, the largest amount of ink was case number 239948 filed in the Superior Court, County of San Mateo, December 8th, 1980. Tell our listeners what happened during that case. And for me, I just, I find it so repulsive. Well, what happened was that he wasn't paying child support because I think he didn't want a kid. And so his way of dealing with that was just denial. So my mother was on welfare because she didn't have any money. Her family was kind of middle class, but wasn't, um, had been shorn apart by mental illness and divorce. Mm -hmm. So no, and her sisters were young, like her, all of them, most of them younger than her. I mean, no, they were helpful, but in no position to help in some sort of huge way. It wasn't like that. When the state was paying all this welfare, someone figured out that I was the daughter of Steve Jobs. And so the state, not my mother, because she was just, busy raising me. I mean, imagine. So the state sued my father for, ch for back child support payments and for ch future child support, uh, meaning they paid, I don't know, about 3000 or something already for mm -hmm. welfare. And they wanted that paid back. And they also wanted child support, which I think came to like 350 bucks a month at the time. Things were less expensive then, but not that much less expensive. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it's nothing. I mean, he knew, and my mother didn't know that Apple was about to go public. And so they were just dragging it out the way you can do with lawsuits, right? But suddenly it comes to conclusion. And my mom didn't know. I mean, my mother is not savvy in this way. She's not a gold digger. She's not. So she had no idea what was going on. She was going kind of like, all right, fine. And, and, and the lawyer upped the 350, I think, to 550 or 600 as a sort of generous, like, okay, we're done and we'll make this what it is. I think it was like the next day Apple went public. And right. so then my father worth all this money. I think it was like 200 million. Of course, if my mother had been savvier in all these ways, she probably could have taken care of herself better financially. But he was difficult, you know? It's, it's a difficult story of, of seeing how both parents are trying, trying in some regards to raise you, but uh, both of them are coming from very broken areas in, in their own ways, different yeah. areas, but both of them are both very broken individuals. Well, broken and young. I know maybe people don't view 23 as young, but 
it's really young. Yeah, absolutely. You haven't actualized yourself yet. You haven't balanced yet. You your cerebral cortex isn't fully developed yet. Um, you don't really know in many ways who you are yet. Your mother's doing her very, very best as she raises you through these difficult days. You don't have much of a relationship with your dad. It slowly starts to come back into tilt. You, you, you jump on the trampoline together. There's a beautiful picture of that. Some experiences like this. And then you have this one night with your dad where you, you feel like you connect. You go to the flight st- simulator and then you write in your journal that night. This is when we all knew that you were gonna be a best-selling author. You write in your journal that night these words. I love my dad, Steve Jobs. Not Ron, who by the way was dating your mom at the time. Not Ron, Steve Jobs. I love him, I love him, I love him. Looking back on that powerful journal entry, for this man that you barely knew. Tell me what that journal entry meant to you back then. If you look at it, it has kind of bubbly handwriting. It's not the most sophisticated of journal moments, but it was sweet. <laughs> right. I don't know, he's very lovable, my dad. When he was in a good in a good space, he was so sweet, so sweet. It's like hard to balance all the cruelty and difficulty in the book with the sweetness. And I try to, you know, but I think what sticks out with people when they read it is is what is what it means to them, what resonates with them. And that's right. the thing about publishing a book is when you're writing it, it's your book. And when you publish it, it's everyone else's book. So if people read this book and think, oh, her dad was both sweet and difficult, yeah. or if they think, oh, it was so funny, or if they think tragic, it was horrible. I can't disagree with that because this isn't my book anymore, right? Yeah. I mean, you know how it is. Like you'll read a book and the characters no, will be yours. one way and then you'll wait and you'll read read it 10 years later and you'll think very differently about the characters as if the book has changed, but it's you that's changed, mm. right? So we are reading books with ourselves. That how it was at the moment was just, this is a way of expressing such a longing. You know, this feeling when you're with someone and it feels more like home. Mm. You long for your father. I mean, you long to be accepted and embraced and loved as the daughter that you are. You're longing for that. You spend more time at his house. And in doing so, you spend less time at your mom's, which now counterbalances the weight swings the other way and she begins to resent you. And and one of the things you share, you talk about how she tells you to your face that she wishes she had never had you. And she's very adamant. She's very specific. The easy question is, how did that make you feel? But I'm I'm not gonna go that way. I'm curious, Lisa, how do you determine as the author what stories to bring forward and to share to add context and truth to this story? And how do you decide which ones to leave in the confines of your heart or in the closet or in the cutting floor? I'm trying to create emotional verisimilitude with what I feel was the truth of what happened. So I, you know, it's like I have two skating scenes with my dad. My dad and I went on probably like 20 skates or more, Mm -hmm. but I don't get to do a whole book of skating with my dad because it's actually (laughs) boring. So I need those turning points. But with my mother in that moment, I mean, it's like, what I'm trying to do with my mother is somehow have you really get a feeling for this woman when you finish. I don't want to pull punches, but I don't want to be saccharine. I want you to sort of get the full feeling, including all the difficulty, and still care about her. Mm. But she has a temper. If you're an artist, which she is, and extraordinarily creative, and you are suddenly stuck with a young baby, I mean, I can't even imagine how hard that would be. It was her responsibility. She chose to have me, but it was a little bit mixed. I guess what I want you to feel when you hear that is sort of a shock that she would say it. And then maybe if you can find in yourself the heart to understand how that might be for her and that that might be the truth for her and that that also exists. 
I have a lot of compassion. And then also it's like, you can't say that to a kid, like get your act together. You know? So I feel all of these things all at once. And what did I leave out? You know, I also had a great editor, an editor that went through the document. So what remained were the things that needed to be said. And, and in most cases, I hope to only say them once, you know, to make it spare enough that the things that I needed to say would come through. And that feeling of my mother's of ambivalence about me and my father's were so true. They needed to be, to be in there. They couldn't be cut because they were true. The ambivalence you just mentioned, your your father in particular, he he invites you after years of not being in relationship with you to live in his house. And then he ignores you once you move in, for the most part. He offers you the last name jobs. You think about it, you accept, hyphenated with your mothers. And then when they take a family picture, he says, step aside, Lisa, step aside. We're going to take a family picture without you. It's this oh odd God. dance between you're, you are at the table and get away from the table. You don't belong here. It's, it's a painful room. Well, I, I was at dinner with them every night, right? I mean, this was my house. I lived there. So I saw my father, but he was working a lot. The other thing is they just had a baby. The household was a bit of a wreck, a totally new marriage, you know, several months old, and a baby who was not sleeping for four years. It was really a hard time for mm. everybody. And my father, he was trying. We did certain things together. He had a, a dentist who'd give root canals to zoo animals. So we went and watched a root canal of a Bengal tiger. Bengal tiger is not, it's, this is not in the book, but I mean, he, he did some cool stuff with me, but he just wasn't particularly good at being anything but intermittent emotionally. Mm. And I was probably the most needy 13 year old. Imagine, you know, my mother and I had been fighting so much and I've moved over to this house I don't know, and these people are completely different and not totally in love with me necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, Lisa, she's so magnificent, which is what my life had been up to that point, you know, my sort of wonderful private middle school and all my friends and my friends' parents, and I had was a definite pleaser. And so I was moving from a very warm, sheltered, loving environment to this environment that felt so strange. And I was probably so needy. You know, there's nothing more... Repulsive, it's terrible to say that a, a needy child. I mean, it's terrible, right? But, you know, it's true, right? You get around a needy child and think, oh. Lisa, I would, I would yeah, just yeah. challenge you. Like, needy in the fact that you want to belong. And I think any child from any side of the country in any part of the world longs to belong where they are. There's a longing to belong. Yeah, I and mean, that was why it was so hard to write this So book, I, I don't really, think you, you, you weren't needing new outfits or new cars or sunglasses like many oh, of us. Oh, I did. I wanted new cars. Yeah. I wanted to be, I wanted new jeans. I wanted to be, it was like if I was going to be in this rich family, then I wanted a Toomey bag too, you know? Mm. And my father mm. was like really trying to resist that. And thank God, like he didn't try to buy me. But it was so hard because it there was not enough emotional richness right. to feel like I could rest, you mm. know? And so it was really hard. I'm going to pivot you in a new direction. You, you mentioned your father was intermittently around emotionally, and it becomes even less so after you go on to college, after you graduate. You're living in London, and clearly this is the— um, the turning point in the book, and hopefully for you as a, as a leader, wanting to know that you belong, that you belong. I want you to share with our listeners about that experience of being on your father's boat in the Mediterranean. My father had invited me onto this boat that they were on, and he invited me for a weekend, but then the weekend drew to, drew to the end, and he said, would you stay longer? And then I said, okay, how long? He said, you know, four more days. And then at the end of those four days, he said, could you please stay longer? It was so sweet. It's so weird. Like, he 
forgotten how, how much we liked each other or something. And then he, faced with the presence of it, he wanted me to stay longer and longer. And at some point it was like, oh, let's go see a friend of mine. And he was being like sufficiently kind of nonchalant and cool. And he wouldn't say who, so it was obvious it was going to be someone famous. And then it turned out to be Bono and they have a villa in Ez, which is a place in the South of France. We drove up to his villa and then we all had lunch together. At a certain point during the lunch, we asked my father, they were talking, oh, the beginning of U2, oh, the beginning of Apple, deciding that these things were similar, the scrappy, exciting beginnings of their respective fields and their respective careers. And then Bono turned to my father and said, oh, the Lisa, it's named after her, isn't it? I paused because throughout my childhood, my father, I'd asked him several times and I built up the courage to ask him every time he would say no. And I would try to ask him not in front of other people because it was so humiliating. Other people would assume that it was named after me, this computer that my father had, had called Lisa. And then he would have to say no. And then I would just feel so embarrassed. And then, so this time I, so I braced myself for like, oh, right. He's going to say no again. And then he said, oh yeah, it was, I was 27. I mean, I'd been asking him for years and he'd been so convincing. No, I'm sorry. Like basically I'm sorry, kid, that you think you're so important to me. Or I'm sorry, kid, that you think I was thinking of you then. But I'm sorry to tell you, but no. You know, that's how he was about it. Yeah. I thought, oh, right, of course it was named after me. What other Lisa was there? I mean, duh. But I had been so convinced. I'd been so convinced that it that it wasn't. Well, he'd been so convincing and had done a masterful job so for 27 convincing. years in just about everything he did and said to prove to you that it was not named after you. You have this father who technologists, leaders, politicians, stars, celebrities, they all think he walks on water. I mean, th th this is the guy. This is Steve Jobs. He's on every billboard, on every corner in Manhattan and around the world. Uh, gosh, you know him, but he's on, on everybody's phone and everybody's laptop. I think I just disassociate. If I'd gotten five extra really good hours with my father and I didn't have an iPhone and nobody did, I'd take that. So I'm like at odds with everybody. My perspective makes no sense in the whole world. I think there's a group of people actually who feel about him almost like a kind of patriarch or father figure. Yeah. Um, because I think he had this message that was really good in a public way, which was kind of like a very simple and beautiful message about, no, follow your dream. Like, follow that thing. Intuition, don't, right. Yeah, don't be full of bluster and full of crap. Like, get back to the simple things and follow mm. them. And I think people really felt enlivened by that idea. And I think that was a true thing coming from him. It was a beautiful thing. You can see it carried all the way through into the products in a certain way. That feeling of simplicity and like, oh, what would, well, what would someone want to do here? You know, a feeling of love and compassion for like the human, for human nature and mm -hmm. the way people work. So that's a good thing. But I have to say, like, in terms of sharing my father with a bunch of people, who have a different perspective than I do about him. Like, I don't think of him as an icon. He right. was my father. Right. I don't think of him as like, oh, thank God he invented that iPhone. I'm like, ugh, kind of took him a lot of time and I didn't get to see him as much. Maybe I would trade all the computers and the iPhone for more of a lovely relationship with my father. Not that I'm saying that trade is possible. What I'm saying is I'm at odds with everybody. And so there was almost no space for my perspective. So I think that was part of the reason for writing the book was like, how do I make a little bit of elbow room for this perspective that maybe goes against the grain of other people's? Knowing you can't ever go back, you can't reclaim what is behind us at this point. What words do you wish you would have heard from your father before he passed away? The death moment was kind of amazing. My father kept on saying, I, I owe you one. I wish I had spent more time, you know, when it was too late. Like time is the thing you've got with the people you love. And at some point, 
no matter what you do, is you don't have the time anymore. So it was like really kind of tragic. I wish we just had more of it. Like I wish he'd said those things earlier. That was enough. That was the balm. Mm. That was the like the thing I had been waiting for. It was like, oh, so we both agree. We both agree about how sad what happened was. We both agree it wasn't enough. We both agree we love each other. Like that sort of thing. Like I am not just this strange person who sees things differently than you. We actually agree. But I just wish he'd done it a few years earlier. And I yeah. think it was like not until he's like pressed against death that he, that he could be that vulnerable, you know, because it takes a lot of humility to say something like that. But I think he was one of those people who's more guarded. And so that couldn't happen until so late. And I wish it had happened earlier because I would not have been vicious with him. And I imagine we would have gotten more of the good time than we did if he had unburdened himself before he was right up against the clock mm. and death. And Lisa, you may not be able to reclaim that, but as I read your book, it was a bold proclamation and a challenge for the rest of us to own it and to reclaim what remains possible in the relationships that should matter. Yeah, and even saying it, like that's the thing. Even if you can't change it, just to acknowledge it was the thing that felt so good. Right. Like, ah, oh, we see things with the same eyes now. And so now we can go forward as friends. So it wasn't like he had to make it better. I think that's sometimes the mistake and the reason people don't say anything is like, well, can't but I it. can't make it, I right. can't fix it. So why should I even say it? But like just saying it helped. Mm. Well, Lisa Brennan Jobs, I want to thank you for the book. Thank you for your heart. It was on every page within the book itself. And I want to thank you for encouraging me to be a better father, a better leader, and a better guy. I really appreciate it. It was it was a very well done <laughs> memoir. Seriously. Well, goodness. I, I didn't felt know like I was I, doing that. I finished last night at around two o'clock in the morning with tears in my okay. eyes and uh, grateful afterwards. Oh, I'm so glad. Wow. That, thank you so much. Lisa, I'm going to ask our listeners to visit the show notes to read your answers to the Live Inspired 7. These are the seven questions that tether all of our guests together. I can't wait to share your responses with our listeners in our show notes. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. My friends, that is Lisa Brennan Job. She is the author of Small Fry. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. My friends, thank you so much for listening to today's Live Inspire podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com with your feedback, maybe your guest suggestions for future shows, stories on how this podcast has helped you live more inspired, or questions that you have for me. Again, send that email to me at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. I can't wait to share with you the next episode.